Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Duber, joined as always by Rachel Madel. How are you? Lucas, we've missed you so much. I'm so happy that you're you're finally back. My, my lovely effervescence has, has returned or, or something along those lines. Um, yes, I'm back and, and joined, of course, by Chris Begay. How are you? I'm thrilled that you're back, man. It's really missed you. <laughs> well, it's excellent to be here. It has been a very, very busy couple of weeks. Um, for those of you that uh, have listened to the podcast for a long time, you probably know that about two months ago here, I had a little bit of a shift in my job uh, situation um, where I was hired to come and take over all of the uh, augmentative communications software and curriculum over at Toby, um, Toby Dynavox. And then shortly after that, um, Toby announced the acquisition of Smartbox, who are good friends of ours uh, based out of the UK who have advertised on the podcast for a long time. It's been a wacky few weeks. So I have been in and out of um, Sweden and, and UK and Germany soon. And uh, right now I'm back in Pittsburgh, I think. I, don't, I can't really tell where I am. Day and night has no meaning. We've but. missed you so much, honestly. <laughs> I mean, Chris and I have been holding down the fort without you, but we we definitely have talked every single time we've recorded about how much we've missed you. So Aww. I sort of wanna I sort of wanna like a little app that posts where's where's Lucas now? <laughs> we should do that in the Facebook group. Maybe we can have some sort of warrant <laughs> if you can track me down. Um, I do know that I'll I'll be at closing the gap here shortly for anybody going to that, and I'd love to to meet folks. Uh, if you see me in the hall, I, I sort of look a little bit like a cross between a a hobbit and a dwarf from the Lord of the Rings, um, but but very ginger in coloring. So anyway, stop me. Uh, and then of course I'll be at ASHA and at ATIA, and um, probably in uh, Readapt in Germany here shortly. So love to connect with people, but I'm I'm just I'm glad to see Rachel and Chris's smiling faces, even though those listeners can't. I'm sorry. Hey, so I'll be at CTG too, closing the gap, but not in person. It's kind of like a top secret. I can't really talk about it. Surprise guest sort of thing uh, for like a, just an hour or so. Are you going to be uh, on one of those iPads on wheels rolling around? Like I can't say. I can't. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll see me there. I don't know. It's a, it's a top secret thing. So you have to be in the right session at the right time and I'll pop up and be there. And then I'll also be at ATIA. So we'll get to see you there. Maybe we can do some sort of live thing or something. Yeah, see perfect. Yeah. Well, we wanted to actually talk about funding today, right? And the joy of funding and the marvelous feelings of enrichment that we get from filling out paper packets and doing long assessments and all that, right? Well, I can tell you this is, I'm eager to talk about this because I know virtually nothing about it. Working in public schools, I mean, we do uh, our assessments and an IEP team makes the decision and then we purchase it. You know what I mean? So um, I have not done private assessments for AAC, and so I'm eager to talk about it. And all I've ever done is read about it and talk to other people about it, but I've never done it myself. So that, that's interesting, though. To, maybe we start there, right? So, so you're talking about the process of, of doing an assessment, finding the right fit for a student, and then making a purchase in the school setting. I mean, the way that you sort of phrase that inherently positions it as being different from what would happen on, on the private side of things. Like, why do you think okay. that would be? Like, is the solution different in the schools? No, I think the funding source is different. Like it, you, you have the law, uh, IDEA, that's, it specifically says that uh, AT is free and therefore AT is free. You just have to have a process for what the student absolutely needs to guarantee a free appropriate public education. Where on the private side, you could, it's not necessarily free. You have to pay for it, right? I mean, is that maybe the funding source is the difference? Okay, Rachel, I, I mean, so I, you, I've worked in, in both settings, so I have opinions, but I'll hold them for now. But <laughs> about the private practice side, like, what is that? Is that different from what you go through? So with the advent of the iPad, it has changed a lot of things, I think. Um, and a lot of what I do is 
because I don't work with a lot of kids with access issues and I work with a lot of kids with autism who typically don't have severe access issues, um, I do a lot of stuff with iPads and I do a lot of stuff in LA with people who can afford to outright buy things. Um, so, you know, I have done some funding uh, for certain devices, but I don't have, you know, a ton of experience doing it. Now, I was, when I was working in Philadelphia, uh, I was working doing earlier intervention and working in the school systems there. I guess this was like five or six years ago now. And I was kind of out of the picture because at that point I wasn't, I was doing some AAC stuff, but I was by no means in charge, right, of the AAC stuff. I really started kind of specializing in that when I moved to California. Um, so what I would do is I would just kind of contact our AT person um, and say, here's what I'm thinking and, and collaborate with them. And then they would deal with all of the paperwork. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't have a ton of experience with the funding either. Um, and I think it's just mostly because of the iPad situation. I don't think if, 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 there, if it was, you know, six or $7,000 versus six or $700, um, I think that's where it makes the big difference. Don't you think maybe that's one of the reasons we have so many more students that are using communication devices than ever before is that once upon a time, the, the price point of communication devices, if you wanted to have a robust language system in a device, it was a six to $7,000 solution. And now it's not. And so that maybe is driving some of this change. Like you said, Rachel, you have families that are just like, yeah, you know, I'll just buy it. I'll just buy it. I'll outright buy it. And I, we certainly see that too in our neck of the woods and definitely families I talk about is like, yes, okay, so yeah, I can get it for free from a school district, possibly if an IEP team that I'm a part of thinks that the student requires it to guarantee a free public education. But what if they don't? And what if that's a fight? And what if that's a hassle when maybe the simpler solution is just what's the iPad and hey, what month do the apps go on sale? You know, okay, maybe I can stretch it to that month or, or so, or maybe I can just outright buy it. Like so. Lucas, have you done an assessment? Have you done an assessment privately for an AAC app? Oh, right. sure. Absolutely. Um, so, so what does the requirement look like? What does that look like? You have to compare three things so you can get Medicaid funding, right? Is that Well, like it depends on the state, right? And, and a variety of different things. So, um, so I've practiced in the schools and privately, I guess, in Oregon and Washington. So I can speak to those two specifically, and I have some knowledge of others, but not a, a huge amount. But even between those two um, states, there was a degree of variability in terms of what was asked for. So Oregon, for example, they have, there is a state um, lending agency that you can often appeal to, which is done through the telephone access program. And um, in, in many states, uh, there actually are laws. Oregon is one of them saying that any, um, anybody, I think over the age of eight years old, has the legally has to have the ability to dial 911. And um, so in situations where I've struggled to get funding, that's a, a loophole I've been able to employ to say, hey, we're actually in violation of this law. We need to furnish them with some the ability to do that. And I've been able to get devices funded that way. And now for, for Oregon, for example, yes, like writing a comparison of three different apps or language systems or access solutions is, is a good rule of thumb. Um, in Washington, at certain price points, they also will require, uh, at least when I was practicing, um, a short video demonstrating you know, the efficacy of the device during a trial. Uh, which was a hurdle that I always um, was not very happy about, I guess, because there's all kinds of privacy concerns there and parents would sort of be like, what are you doing this for again? And then the other thing too is just from, a, from an actual efficacy standpoint, I mean, you can cherry pick a video to make it look like whatever you want. I mean, it's just sort of a meaningless requirement. So, I, you know, on the one hand, I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, that the advent of multi-touch iPads and things has, has created this, you know, real renaissance in accessibility 
this is a funny phrase, but accessibility of accessibility, right? People can, can get a hold of these apps. But that really has not changed the picture much for, I guess, what I would call complex access users, right? So eye gaze, um, a lot of the more complex switch applications are getting better, but historically still weren't. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, this is a tough episode to do because I don't want to be all bleak about it, but there, there isn't, there's good news, but it's definitely, the end is not in sight, right, when it comes to the difficulties of funding. Uh, well, so I know some things that we brainstorm in our neck of the woods is about um, alternative funding sources. Like, so what if you couldn't afford the $800 you know, the iPad and app solution? Uh, what would be some options? And we, we talk about like grants and we talk about um, some sort of crowdsourcing or, or funding of that nature, but that is all about just getting the device. There's a whole other thing after that. It's like about how you actually teach somebody to implement this, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, and it, it's kind of wild to think about the, um, the amount of money that is spent on on apps relative to uh, to intervention, right? And it, but at the same time, yeah, you can sort of flip it on its head because if you think about, um, say, you're buying an iPad app for two hundred dollars, right? And you're you're going through this massive funding struggle to get that approved because it's technically not a dedicated device, et cetera, et cetera. But then at the same time, the insurance company is saying, sure, go ahead to thirty-seven visits a year at one hundred and twenty dollars an hour, right, um, for the intervention. So it sort of goes both ways, right? Um, I mean, as, as a, I th we, we know from research, and I think we know even from clinical evidence and practice-based evidence, that, um, that adoption rates in AAC are, are substantially impacted by parent training and caregiver support and all of this carryover stuff that happens during the week weeknights and weekends, much more so than they are by the specific language system that's been chosen. And that's a little bit tough, I think, for people to wrap their heads around, but I would love to see a model in the future where we're putting more money towards the intervention and less towards the specific device solution. The selection, picking the right tool. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's a huge myth. You know, you see those uh, people write the, the myths of AAC, and I think that's a huge one, that we spend so much time selecting the right device, but maybe there's multiple right devices, you know. And then you're, right. what you're saying is, now put a lot of your the funding behind the implementation of it and the training of it as opposed to the selection of it, right? Right. Precisely. Well, and, and there, like you say, there are very often multiple right choices. There are often multiple wrong choices too, right? So, I mean, sure. some thought clearly needs to go into this process. But um, one thing that I sort of like to say about the AAC field is that uh, there are many different solutions and all of them stink variously, right? Like there, there is no one, oh my gosh, that is perfect for everyone thing out there. And um, so for that reason, like the you know, the quote, I, I think from Cater Hearn years ago that I often, often like to use is that it, it almost doesn't matter what church you go to as long as everyone goes with you, right? You need everyone to be on board for the right solution. Um, but what that solution is can, can be pretty variable. Do you find, Rachel, when you work with students and they come in that you're spending a lot of time figuring out what the right tool is? Or do you just kind of hit the ground running with like, okay, let's go? So a lot of the families that come see me are families who want an AAC device, a high-tech system, and the school um, is telling them that their child's not ready, their child can't do it, um, you know, they haven't gotten to a certain level of PECs. And so a lot of what I want to do is just get started right away because I feel like these kids are already kind of have been kind of waiting um, and families have been fighting the schools to try to get a system and then they realize they have to go, you know, outside of the school system to to get one. And so 
I don't spend a ton of time. Um, you know, obviously I do some trialing and things like that, but for me, I'm more concerned with, I need to teach you how to use this. I need to teach you and everybody that's working with your child how to implement AAC. So much so that if somebody calls me and they just want an assessment, I won't do it. Because I can't, in good faith, set them up with a system knowing that if they don't understand how to use it, that, you know, it won't be effective. Um, so, and I've had families uh, or parents who have called me and said, listen, we just need an assessment. And I'm like, okay, but, you know, included in the price of my assessment is training. Because without the training, it's, it's useless in a lot of ways. And I, I don't think, I think and we've talked about this so many times on the podcast, there's this idea that you put a device in front of a child and miracles happen. It's like, wow, like they just, are, they, were, they were locked in and now they're talking. Um, you know, they don't realize that we need to teach the language. Um, and AAC is a different language. So it's just, and, I, and, I, and I, it's the first thing I say during those initial phone calls is, listen, I want you to have success. I want your child to start communicating. I know it's possible. You know, we just need to figure out what system makes sense given, you know, your child's unique needs. And then we need to figure out how can I train everybody in that, in that circle of support to help. Um, and I think that that's one piece that's oftentimes missing. And when I first started, I would just do the assessment. But now I'm like, no, because I know those kids that I did the assessment for. And, you know, maybe I'll see their ABA therapist or the BCBA down the line. I'm like, oh, how's so-and-so doing? Oh, the device isn't being used or you name it, but it's just not successful. And why? Because I didn't do the training. Not that I didn't want to do the training, but, you know, it's, I offered the assessment and, and it was kind of like, okay, we have the assessment. We're done. And they'll say, you know, yes, they're able to identify the color purple with the maximum prompt in five out of six trials in a controlled environment. Exactly. There you go. You know, so you keep using the word training, Rachel, and I've had a, a this might be just semantic wizardry as well, but I've had a lot of parents come and say, or and administrators be like, okay, so you need to do training. You need to do training. And I think in many people's minds, training means like a one or two thing. Like you come, you get trained, and now you know how to do it. And I'm wondering if that's a switch that and I, I've been least thinking about is should it be more like ongoing coaching because are you ever fully trained like at what point do you if you think about like all those you know uh, competencies the Janus light competencies the operational like maybe operational I got there but all the rest of them are like you could just keep learning and learning and learning and learning and learning and you have received some training but what you really need is ongoing coaching I don't know what do you think I completely agree. And I think that if we're doing it right, children will be making progress. And as they continue to make progress, things continue to change. So, you know, you might start with a system and you've masked a lot of, you know, 60% of the buttons and or the icons. And then at what point do you, you know, unleash a few more? And at what point do you add grammatical morphological endings? And at what point do you then focus on, you know, keyboards and typing. Um, so it's just like, you're exactly right. It's not this one and done. Um, and, and maybe, maybe I should start changing the wording, the semantics that I am using. Um, cause I think you're exactly right. It does insinuate that you're trained and you understand, right? Just how like, you know, you do a, a certification for your job and you're trained. So now you can go off and, and fly. Um, yeah. you know, so I think that, I think that the semantics does matter. Um, and I love the idea of coaching. We talked a lot about that too, a lot on this podcast, you know, because it, it, it also, I think when, when, when there's a training, there's a trainer 
and there's trainees. Um, and I don't, and I don't like to, to approach AAC like that because I like to be alongside of a teacher or a parent and, and brainstorming together and troubleshooting together. Cause a lot of times these things come up and it's like, what do I do? I'm not sure. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure either, but like, let's try this and see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. I definitely don't consider myself fully trained yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> me either. <laughs> especially not in doing assessments, apparently, you know, I, especially private assessments and during a, I know how to do it for a school, but uh, privately, if you're specifically trying to get a device, I need more training. Uh, and I, you know, I walk that fine line too, Rachel. It's so interesting you brought that up is that that trainee, trainer and trainee, like uh, you're the holder of knowledge and you need to give the knowledge to somebody else. And there are times where I feel that way, like, okay, I know about least to most prompting, let's say, right? And you, uh, teaching assistant, don't know about least to most prompting. And so in this part, it's not really brainstorming. I'm going to teach you how to do least to most prompting. But then there's other times like the selection process or, uh, uh, I don't know, predictive chart writing or I, I don't know, there's other skills that would be like, let's get together and brainstorm how we're actually going to implement this device all day long in your classroom. I'm an equal partner with you in that regard. I don't hold all the, I don't hold the keys. I don't have the knowledge there. It's us figuring it out together. And it's, I think it, tricky in my, in my field is, uh, you know, working in the schools as a facilitator is to when is it that I'm the content knowledge holder that, I'm, that is bestowing the content upon you? And when am I supposed to be the, the facilitator that is walking with you and helping you figure it out for yourself? You know, no one's going to figure out least to most prompting by themselves expediently anyway. You know, do it a lot faster if I could just, just watch me do it. Okay, now you do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Teaching the teachers, yep. Exactly. And also, you know, speaking of prompting, it's like you need somebody that's not you kind of like helping you, right? I feel like just the same way that we watch CFYs or, you know, new clinicians or students um, and kind of give them feedback. I need somebody giving me feedback too. Um, I feel like it would be really helpful because when you're in the middle of something, you're thinking about so many different things and, you know, kind of talking about Jill Center and Matt Bob, like I love that whole like piece of, you know, let's take a video of what happened and talk about it because I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle is how could we, what do we do and how could we do it a little bit differently? And I think that's where the coaching comes in. Right. You know, one thing this is occurring to me is that in private practice, I actually charged less for an assessment than my hourly rate would typically dictate. And my rationale with that was uh, that in, in doing that, for, well, it was twofold, right? The first one was that in, in charging less for it, that hopefully if I did a good enough job and built the rapport, that then I would establish that sort of training or coaching rhythm with the parents or with the family that would then turn it into a longer term, you know, client, right? So then I would recoup whatever loss or whatever while simultaneously sort of getting them the service they need. But then, frankly, there was a second reason why I charged less, and that's because it felt kind of fluffy sometimes, if that made sense, right? Like, there was no standardized protocol that I was paying for at $12 per sheet to fill out the way that it would be with articulation or something. It was really just, uh, you know, adapting other tools and going with my clinical intuition. And for that reason, I felt fluffy. I mean, am I crazy? No. <laughs> I don't think Obviously, you're crazy I am at all. Crazy, but <laughs> But I think that is a huge issue. And in fact, maybe something we cover in a future podcast banter before, a, uh, before an interview, because I think one of the reasons I have straight not done private assessments or, or even considered going that route is the idea that how do those assessments really work? And are they really, oh yeah, we'll just jump into it and see if maybe we can't fit it in, maybe we do. Okay, so if I were to take a, an app and I'm going to try it with a student, and then I have to do that for a little while. And then I'm going to try another application and try with a student. I often find that that is weird because I've already spent so much time teaching the first one 
does it influence the variable on the second one? Like the kid already knows where Go is on this device. And so now they have to learn where Go is on the second device. And probably they're going to do better on that first device because I spent two weeks teaching them, you know, on how, however long, teaching them where uh, Go is. That's question number one for me. And question number two is, am I just randomly picking which one to try first? Or did I have some sort of idea about why I wanted to try one first? And whatever that idea might be, then why wouldn't you just run with that? Like, why would you just go with that? And what was your rationale for picking what to try first? And I think that goes back to us second guessing ourselves as clinicians, right? It's like, and, and there's something to be said for not just always going with your gut, right? We have like evidence-based practice for a reason because we can't just always go with our gut. But like you said, Chris, you pick that first device or that first app or whatever for a reason. And yeah. it was because you felt like that would probably be the most successful. And then it feels like we're just adding other things to prove us right, you know, like prove that the one we did in fact choose was the one that was, you know, the best fit. I wonder, Rachel, if people do it the opposite though. Again, not, not doing this. Do people say, okay, I got, I, I must, in order to write this report and get funding, I must, uh, I must try the student on three devices. So I'm going to pick two that I know won't work. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know. I'm not, uh, not saying I know anyone that does that. I'm just speculating that that might be a, a way of doing, it, you know? Is yeah. I, I've seen reports written that like that where it's like you have somebody who was clearly like, you know, maybe a seven-year-old with, with Down syndrome who is a symbol, symbolic communication user. I'll read a report and say like, they were trialed on, you know, a predictive keyboard and on, on communicator software. And then it was found that they were more effective with ProLoquo to go. It's like, well, yes, I know. Right. <laughs> like, or then, or then I'll conversely, I'll read one where it's like, we, they were trialed with a predictive keyboard with ProLoquo to go and with a visual scene display and any of the three are a good fit for their use. And it's like, no, that's not true either. Like you clearly didn't actually do this assessment because those are three completely different approaches. I mean, oh, sorry. I'm like, now I'm just jumping in with anecdotes. But I guess the point is that there, there, there is method to the madness of having the idea of three, right? Because I can't tell you how many times that my gut has been proven wrong, right? When I try something out um, with a student. But that being said, I don't know. It's probably 95% of the time I end up recommending what I sort of thought I was going to recommend. Yeah. Like how often are you wrong is the question, you know, right. uh, and is that worth the gamble? I mean, I think of it from a scientific perspective, right? If we're, if we're thinking of speech, and this was originally born out of the Speech Science Network, right? Our podcast, right? The, the science would be you have an hypothesis and then you try and control all the variables to prove whether that hypothesis was true or right. false, right? And so- that seems to me different than how a uh, an AAC evaluation is is typically run, where it's like, no, I don't know. Let's try these three things and try them out. Like that's not having an hypothesis. Right. But, Very good question. Very good point. Geez, and no, on press. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I, what maybe the big takeaway here is we need to talk to more people who are doing assessments and the reasoning behind the assessments and the funding models. Like we have a funding person coming up now and how she got funding, right? That's the, the interview that's coming up? Yes, Tracy Poplinski. she started an organization called A Voice Discovered. And they do a lot of things actually that I didn't even realize until I had the interview with her. Uh, but the biggest thing is that they, they provide grants for AAC. Everything from an assessment to a device to an iPad to implementation sessions with an AAC provider after the fact. Um, so I'm really excited to have her on and hear about her experience. 
you know, she just saw a need in her, her community and she started an organization to help. Um, she said there was a lot of people who needed, who needed AAC who weren't getting it. And that was what inspired uh, her to start this organization. And so we talk a lot about her starting the organization and, and how, how, what an impact it's had in, in, in her community. Great. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like we've, we've established a number of things in this brief conversation, and one of them is an already known fact in our field that assessment needs a little bit of work, right? So this conversation is by no means over, but let's do take a moment and um, hear Rachel's interview with Tracy. Well, welcome back to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Tracy Paplinski. I'm so excited to have Tracy on. She's doing a lot of really cool work when it comes to funding, and she started a nonprofit that we're going to talk about today. So before we get started, Tracy, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into what you're doing now. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have this opportunity. Um, I am a speech pathologist. Uh, with a lot of AAC experience in Ventura County, California. Um, I've been practicing for about 15 years. Uh, I've worked primarily with uh, kids and now adults with complex communication needs. And uh, through that work, I saw a lot of difficulty or issues with funding, and that's what was kind of the reason that I started or started thinking about starting a nonprofit. And so um, with uh, help of a number of people, was able to start the nonprofit of Voice Discovered uh, to help with to help a little bit with funding, uh, funding assistance for AAC. Yeah, I know. And that's kind of how I, I, I met you. Um, mm -hmm. I have a client that found your organization that's and right. we, you know, right. and then we were just at a training last that's weekend right. and I like put two and two together. I was like, Oh my gosh, that's Tracy from a voice discovered. Um, and we had already talked about having you come on the podcast. So it was just so funny. So now it was like, okay, well, we definitely have to do this thing now. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your organization. You know, how does it work? And we can also, you know, open a broader discussion about funding and kind of the challenges with that. Yeah, absolutely. So a voice discovered I started um, uh, 2012. So we've been in, a, a, we've been an organization for about six years, but we've really been working or providing grants for about three or four years. The One of the main purposes of Voice Discovered was also to provide information and a, a place for families to find resources about AAC uh, because a, a lot of families were coming to me with questions and didn't know what funding sources were available to them. So we have a website of voicediscovered.com and um, I need to update it, but there are, there are a lot of uh, links to different websites on there about funding and about AAC in general and about implementation and, and such. Um, so that was one piece was the resource or providing information. Another piece was the grant program. So we have a grant program where we provide uh, five to six grants a year that uh, are about $1,500 up to $1,500, which isn't a lot of money, but it's been, we've been able to help families get started with whether it be an assessment to get funding for a device. We've funded iPads with communication systems on them. We've funded mounts and we've also funded um, like cell phones and computers for people who already had a system, but then didn't have a way to pay for that type of technology to keep them connected. 
so that that was our grant program. Um, we also have a parent support group run by Linda Cronkey, who is our uh, parent liaison and one of our board members and the mother of a, a boy who has cerebral palsy and uses AAC. And she does a fantastic job of connecting families in our area. <clears throat> and one of the other one of the other pieces is we ran an AAC camp this summer in uh, Newbury Park, and it was absolutely amazing. We had 12 kids and a ton of volunteers from local universities and it was it was incredible it was just yet another way to connect families and create a support network for them which is part of the the problem I think is that mm -hmm. you know there's not there's a lot kind of out there now with social media which is really nice but having you know a a close-knit support group I think is one of the best things that we can do for our clients because you know this is hard and yes. you know if I feel like a lot of times when parents are going through the initial stages of um, realizing there's complex communication needs or, you know, getting a diagnosis of whatever that might be, um, it's really isolating and they kind of don't know where to turn and what to do. And I think those support networks are so important. Um, yeah. and, and now with the internet, it's so nice because we can connect. We can connect exactly. so easily. Um, so I'm so, so excited to hear that you guys are kind of, uh, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot. I didn't even realize how much you yeah, guys yeah. are doing. <laughs> we are, we're bad. Linda and I are, our, the rest of the board we're really bad at marketing ourselves and that's actually what we need is we need a board member who can come on on and sell our story and show it you know really show people what we're doing because we're busy doing all of it and we're not very good at getting out there and showing what we're doing so yeah, yeah so anybody who's listening who knows marketing yeah. and wants to help I awesome. mean email Tracy <laughs> we'll we'll definitely have her contact information yeah. in the show notes that's the, the trend that I'm seeing there's a lot of SLPs and AAC specialists mm -hmm. but we're so busy practicing right like we're so right. busy out there helping um, so we you know we start businesses and, and things like that but it's just it's hard to do it all and I'm right. sure you know that all too well yes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so let's talk a little bit more about the grant how do you guys get funding for for the grants well the majority of our funding comes from individual donors so we've been okay. really lucky if each year in that we have had people make pretty pretty nice size donations um, some people will do it through a matching funds through their company Company. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, Amgen is one of the, we're, we're near Amgen and one of our donors do, um, works at Amgen. So whenever he donates, Amgen also donates the same amount. Mm -hmm. um, we've had other people, I think Disney was another one. Um, it's also just been a lot of small donations from people who are, are connected in some way, whether it be a grandchild or uh, a neighbor or something like that, and they just want to give back. This year, we're not quite sure when we're going to do it because it can't, but we do an annual fundraiser every year, which is also been a source of funding not not a huge amount but enough to fund at least one a, a grant and a half so yeah so we using our current model we've been able to maintain the same level of support each year but we would at some point like to be able to give more but that's the getting a fundraiser <laughs> right exactly and that's kind of yeah. where the the marketing and the scalability right. comes into play right it's like right. how do we make this like bigger and exactly. get more eyeballs on it exactly. um but i really appreciate what you guys are doing and i think it's much needed um yeah. is there is there anything else out there i'm sure you did a lot of research before you started something like this there are other grant programs i mean there is um i think it's and i'm not going to get it right that the apraxia network childhood 
child apraxia of speech, CAS, I don't know the acronym. Yes. Um, they have, a, I know they have an iPad grant program for uh, children with apraxia. And I know there, I believe the Autism Society has done it as well and other like local groups have done it. So it, usually, it's, it tends to be either for a specific diagnosis from what I've seen or um, for like at, a, at the local level, or you'll see people fundraise through like Kiwanis or one of those charities that are out there. But it's not, it's hard. You have to know where to look is what it seems like. Exactly. Um, and just to clarify for our listeners, is your grant program something that anybody can apply for? Is it, is it local to California? Good question. We are actually right now, because we're so small, we're keeping it local to California and we mm -hmm. may actually be tightening it up to just Ventura County, <laughs> sadly, but it's because we have a lot of people in our area who need support. And so we may help them first and then open it up to like LA County and Southern California. But as of right now, we've, we will each, the last three years, we've met our grant quota by April and we're out of money for the rest of the year. So it's, it's the word's getting out there and that's just Ventura County and LA County. So yeah, that's awesome. So, so I guess my next question is thinking through, you know, say we have somebody who's listening and they're in Ohio. Mm -hmm. Is this something that they could do? They could start something like this? Like, I'm really interested in kind of figuring out how you took this idea mm -hmm. and then turned it into like, we started an organization. We have right. all these, these funds. Is it something that, you know, anybody who sees a need in their area can do? Absolutely. I think so. I mean, it is, it is a lot, it is work to set up a nonprofit for sure to become a 501c3. There's a lot of <laughs> paperwork involved. We did have an attorney involved in helping us set up our bylaws and such and articles of incorporation, all that fun stuff. But one, now that we're running and we have a model, it's not actually that bad. It's not that hard to keep going. And I know I've actually spoken with uh, another person in California who was doing the same thing, who actually took our model and started using our model with their nonprofit. So I, I do think it's something that can be done, but I, I think one of the successes for us has been having families on the board. On the board, So we have families of children with complex communication needs on our board, and that has been, has helped us, I think, because they're so invested. And um, yeah, that's, that has definitely helped us. Yeah. forward. So exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the why, right? Why did we, why did you start this organization? Uh -huh. And I'm guessing it was because you saw a lot of need and the, the funding situation. And yeah. so I want to kind of open this to a broader discussion of, of the funding crisis, if you will. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing being in a variety of settings was seeing not only the schools, but also in day programs with adults, um, uh, and, in private practice as well is we would just see people not have the funding to get an assessment done. So a lot of times you were seeing people not be able to get the assessment because they either didn't have insurance or the case, at least where we are in California, they might have Medi-Cal, but nobody takes Medi-Cal because the reimbursement rates are so low that we can't, we can't take it. Um, so that was one of the, that's something that I saw that seems simple. If we could provide a grant that would pay for the assessment, then the, that if that person was going to get something through Medi-Cal, like a dedicated device, a, a more traditional speech generating device, the report's written and then it does get funded. 
Mm-hmm. So it seemed like that just seemed like such a simple solution. If we could give them the money for the assessment, then they could get the device. Yeah, no. And that's the, that's the thing that it's just the, the funding situation is so hard. You mentioned yeah. medi I'm in California too. Yeah, and I know yeah, I <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's a challenge and it's like yeah. the insurance situation in and of itself, you know, mm-hmm. not just with AAC, but across the board. Oh, absolutely. Is absolutely. a mess. Yes. Yes, it is. I and just got off the phone with an insurance company and okay. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, like, it's like they, they're constantly like rejecting these claims and I'm, I'm not even in network. I'm out of network. Right. So, I'm, you know, because I, in network is just a whole nother can of worms that I can't Absolutely. deal with. But um, yeah, it's just really hard with the insurance company situation. It is. It is. And that, I think that that's why we kind of chose the number we chose to, we could serve mm-hmm. a, a good, you know, five or six people. It's not a lot, but it's, it's some. Um, and then also the training and therapy piece afterwards is we've had people who've gotten a device and then we might help pay for therapy afterwards or training uh, staff and caregivers, because that was the other piece is if they didn't have, they might get a device and then have nobody to train them how to use it or how to teach them how to implement it, which we all know having trained caregivers is imperative to the success. So that was the other, other piece. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's, we've talked so much on this podcast about how we're, you know, a lot of times we're so heavy on the assessment piece Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out which exact system is right. Um, And, you know, there's a place for that, but it doesn't matter if we don't teach somebody how to use it. Um, So if we can't support that implementation, then it's kind of all for naught in a lot of ways. And that's when you see abandoned devices that are just collecting dust and not being used. Right, Right. So I love to, to hear that you guys are working on that implementation piece too. Right. Um, cause it's, it's just as important as, Absolutely. you know, getting the, the device set up. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's talk a little bit about a training program. So you were just at Isaac, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you presented there. So tell me a little bit about what you presented on and this project. Yeah, so through my colleague's organization, Integrated Therapy Services with Cheryl Fletcher, we were connected with the ARC of Ventura County, and the ARC is actually a national nonprofit that serves, I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I believe only adults with intellectual disabilities, it may be kids too, but at least in California where we are, they provide day programs for adults with intellectual disabilities, and um, they do a fantastic job, some of the best day programs I've seen. Uh, so they received a grant through the state of California called the Disability Communications Fund, which is a grant for people to maybe look into if you have a larger organization um, that provided 40 iPads for them a few years ago. And I ran into the guy who got the grant. His name's Andy Mack. He's their IT specialist. <laughs> so he got the iPads and then said, well, how do we teach, what, which app do we put on here? And how do we teach our people how to use them? And I said, well, do you have a speech pathologist on, on your payroll? And they said, no, we don't have anybody. So they had nobody. They had these iPads, didn't know what app to put on. And of course, we know not one app fits all. And um, so we started working with them. Didn't have very many hours. We did the best we could. But then they went back on another grant for the training piece. So now we are able to go to each of their seven sites in Ventura County. We provide all staff trainings and then 
uh, individual coaching for the uh, staff members with the clients or their partic they're called participants there. Um, and we do we don't do assessments, we do consults with them. So we do our best to figure out what app's going to work best. It's the, our best guess, so it's not it's not perfect. And we've had to kind of step away from that and kind of change our expectations. <laughs> um, but it's been incredibly it's been a, it's been a learning process for sure. What's the best way? How do we get our, the most bang for our buck when we get in there and do trainings? There is a high staff turnover, which is tricky, but we think we have a pretty good model now. We do use uh, Jill Center and Matt Bod's s'mores uh, approach to teach to teach modeling. That's been our biggest piece is teaching them modeling. Um, and as well as uh, there are other factors as well, but that, uh, that's been the biggest piece of teaching them the modeling piece and just getting the devices out there and using them with them. Um, but it's been probably one of my favorite times each week is when I go to the ARC. It's Ooh. so fun. It is. Yeah, that's really wonderful. <laughs> I was there this morning, so I was so, you know, so I walked away, you know, with a positive feeling, so... <laughs> I know. Actually, we had we just had Jill Center and Matt Bowd on oh, I the thought, podcast. I, I, saw, I think I saw that somewhere on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. No. So I, I was excited to hear you say that. And I, yeah. I know they'll be excited to hear that yeah. too. Um, but yeah, so I, I just, I think you're touching on a really important point of adults and I feel like it's such an underserved population. Um, I was asked, um, to do a training for a similar day program and I did some observation cause I was like, you know, I don't, first of all, I work a lot with kids. Um, I do some stuff with adults, but it's definitely not, you know, what I spend most of my time doing. And so I did an observation and I was just shocked at the lack of yep. communication happening, resources. Yep. You know, we talk a lot of times in schools, it's like, wow, like we don't have any high tech things. Like they had nothing. No. Um, so it's just, yeah. it's such an underserved population that I think needs a lot of assistance and a lot of support. And so I'm, yeah, I'm really happy to hear, to hear that you guys are working with them and kind of figuring out the, the model because I work with a lot of kids with autism and there's more and more kids with autism who are going to be more and more adults with autism. And I really think that we need to figure out how to focus on kids or adults after they kind of graduate out of the school systems. Um, I think it's, it's really tough. But that's, I mean, that was the biggest piece when we walked into the ARC too, because we did the same thing. We did observations. We wanted to see how the programs were run and there was absolutely no AAC low tech, high tech, except for we ran into a couple people who had low tech boards on their lap trays that their parents had made. Um, wow. or, or we'd hear so-and-so used to have a device, but it broke. So it's mm -hmm. like, well, they can get another one, <laughs> but that's right. the assessment piece or finding somebody who can do that. So it's also been not only going in and training, but we've been educating their managers and supervisors and case managers about what resources are out there for these people. So in our area, we have had some success with our regional center funding assessments for the adults. Wow. Yes. That's great. I, yeah. It's been, it's been through, um, it's, I know it's not the same at every regional center, but we've, we've had some, some success. And so we've been able to help a couple of adults in our area get systems set up. And some people never had, have had a system and some are replacing a system. So that's, it, it's, again, it's, it's, it's providing the information and, and teaching the people who are advocating for them where to go um, to get the resources. Absolutely. So I have a question. If you are an SLP mm -hmm. and you have a kiddo who, or an adult, um, who you think needs a device and needs funding assistance. 
what's, what are the next steps for them? I mean, if they're in California, maybe applying to your grant seems like a good idea. Um, but just generally speaking, you know, what's the, what's the process? I, I always make, make sure that is one of the things on our application is to find out what all the potential funding sources are to mm -hmm. begin with. Because there are a number of them, so, you know, exploring if they do have insurance, um, if they do have Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the, the school is also a potential funding source. Although once they leave the school, the device doesn't go with them, you know, right. when they 22. Um, and then, I mean, looking at the big ones first, I know in California, we also have CCS, our California Children's Services is another funding source. Um, there's also the, um, the telecommunications act. I can't remember what it's called in California, but we actually got a device for somebody through them. So I believe I want to say each state has one of those and I can look up the actual name of it and email that to you Great. as a resource. But, um, that's, that's something that is often not used, but then yeah, looking for, looking, looking for grants in the area, looking for organizations that might have grants. I know other people have used, um, like I was saying, local charities such as the Lions Club. Um, what's another big one? The, oh, those big, I can't, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but they're the big, those, they have chapters in different areas of the country and they will, you can approach them and a lot of times they might do fundraisers for you to get a system. So I've seen things like that or even using the crowdsourcing uh, GoFundMe type stuff. But it's, it's, once you've exhausted all the traditional funding sources, you oftentimes have to get creative, which is why we started the nonprofit, <laughs> why we started A Voice Discovered. Absolutely. You, you hit a lot of the big ones. I'm, I don't think that I can think of anything else. Let's talk a little bit about how the iPad has changed the game mm -hmm. for AAC, because I feel like that is a huge component, right? I mean, it Absolutely. used to be we yeah. didn't have access to an iPad, so we yeah. had to raise four or $5,000, <laughs> and, and now I think it's the iPad has made things so much more accessible. So oh, let's, let's talk about that a little bit and how it's changed, changed the game. Yeah, it's definitely been a game changer. I know it's, it's just made AAC more accessible, which, you know, has its pros and cons in some ways, but the pros being that we can get something into the hands of more people much more quickly. And I feel like for organizations like schools and organizations, even like the ARC, the iPad is fantastic because you can get a lot of them <laughs> for yep. you know, a pretty decent price or they have deals if you get, you know, buy in bulk or you buy, you know, an app in bulk. Um, so it definitely gets them into the hands of more people. More, A lot of people can't afford to just go out and buy an iPad with an app and a case. A lot of people I work with cannot, which is why, you know, another reason for starting the grant because it, while it is more relatively cost effective, it isn't, it still isn't for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but even as a, as a therapist, it's been fantastic to have for assessments because you don't have to wait for, to get a loaner device if you think you're going to be pursuing high tech. Um, you have the iPad with a whole bunch of apps on there that you can use as part, right away as part of your assessment. Um, and that's, that's definitely changed the assessment game for sure. So you can get moving a lot quicker on, in that area. Uh, I do think, I mean, it's, it's, while it's great and they are more cost effective, it can also, it does have cons and that you'll see people, they'll go out buy an iPad and buy an app without having had an, an assessment. <laughs> and then we're yes. dealing with that. So <laughs> while it's fantastic that we can, and it, there are, and there, I think there are definitely more, but 
pros than cons for sure. But that is definitely one that, that I've seen as a therapist is somebody comes in with an iPad and an app, but they didn't have an assessment done. And so then you're dealing with like, are we going to work with this? Are we going to maybe look at some other things and potentially, you know, switch apps if there's one that's more appropriate? Yeah, I've had the same situation in my practice. Mm-hmm. I'll have a family and they just impulsively buy, uh-huh. right? And I'm like, just yep. wait. Like even, yep. even after I say, okay, we, we're going to do some trying. It's going to take a few sessions. Um, you know, I come back and they're like, we bought it. I'm like, it yeah. okay, okay, you bought it. But now it's like we're locked into this and I feel guilty if I want to maybe recommend a different app. Um, right. Because right. it's, you know, like you said, it's more inexpensive, but it's still a, a cost, right? And yeah, it's not $10. Yeah, um, these, no, they're really not. So yeah, absolutely. I can, right. I can relate. Yeah. And that is, that is actually one thing we started too. And I know there are some other um, organizations in, in the States that do that, that provide loans, iPad loans. And so that's one thing we have a few iPads that we loan out with different apps on them. Cause that is something I recommend to families who are considering iPads and apps is please, I know you're looking at this app, but please try it first. Let's try it for four to six weeks, just like you would with a more traditional speech generating device. Let's try it. Let's, let's make sure this is the right one. And so we have uh, three iPads that we, not very many, but we've loaned out locally and actually we're loaning one out into LA somewhere soon for somebody to try before buying anything or before making that final decision. And is this a, through a voice discovered? We ha- yeah. So we have a small lending library, um, but then we also, there's also um, the ability tools, which is our state's um, assistive tech act. And you can also get iPads through them with various, various apps on them. And then there's also uh, voice options, which is part of ability tools. But with voice options, you, I believe you have to go to a center and actually meet with somebody. And so that might be tricky for people because there are only like five or six centers in California. But we do. There are, there are options for trialing iPads before, you know, and the various apps before buying. No, I love that idea. It's, I mean, it's just the kind of like the traditional lending library, right? It's just <laughs> right, right. more accessible and not as expensive. And right. Yeah, that's perfect. Are there any stories, Tracy, that you have of getting a device into the hands of somebody who you felt really needed it? Any success stories? Yeah, I mean, I think working, having worked with the adults has been probably the most rewarding, especially when we walked in working with people. I mean, so we have some people in their 20s who were pretty sure had something in the school and then no longer have anything, which is a whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. Um, but then people in their 40s and 50s and 60s that we've been seeing who maybe have never had anything and getting them talking with things. And, and it's really been these experiences at the ARC that have been absolutely amazing. And then the staff's responses to them too, saying, wow, I had no idea that she liked that, or I had no idea that that's what he wanted to talk about. And so that has been, and I know that's through, that's not necessarily through the nonprofit, but that's been just one of the great experiences of people having access to a system that never had, or, or might not have had, um, had they not been a part of this program. So I know. And it's just, we often take for granted the fact that we're able to so easily communicate and tell people what we like and what we don't like to imagine a life of 50 Mm -hmm. or 60 years, Mm -hmm. not being able to say those things, you know, it's just, it's really remarkable when you're able to kind of give that gift to somebody. It really, yeah, it really is. It really is. I love it. So heartwarming. I love, I love ending on a heartwarming note. Oh, I always ask this to all of our, our interviewees. If you had a billboard that every SLP saw, what would it say? 
Oh gosh. So I thought about this. I had a, tr a tricky, <laughs> I had a hard time coming up with this. I said, I'm afraid I'm going to be ripping somebody off because I take quotes from other people, but always cite them, you know, because there's some great quotes out there about AAC, but I said, I would think it should say everyone deserves a voice, but I don't know if that came from somewhere. So if it did, I apologize. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I think it's exactly what we just said, right? I mean, everybody does, does deserve a voice and yeah. that's why we do what we do. Right, right. Perfect. Right. Um, and Tracy, where can people find you online? Um, well, we're at, we have our website, uh, avoicediscovered.com. We also have a Facebook page, just a voice discovered. Um, I have, in, I have a personal Facebook page too. Um, also my, I work with my colleague, uh, through integrated therapy services. I believe though the website is actually integrated therapy service. <laughs> the website is service, integrated therapy service.com. And we will link to all of those in the show notes so everybody can, can get in touch um, if they have any questions. Um, thank you so much, Tracy, for coming and joining us today, talking a little bit about funding and what you guys are doing in California. I think it's really remarkable and uh, admirable. I know you are a busy woman. Um, so the fact that you're doing this to kind of support your, your local community is just really wonderful. So keep up the good work. Thanks. Awesome. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel. We will talk to you guys next week. Well, thanks so much to Tracy Poplinski for coming on and talking to Rachel about that. I think it's really important to hear about these other um, funding resources. I guess one message I, I would deliver to SLPs out there is please don't be discouraged when you hit, well, be discouraged, but then fight back when you hit walls with funding, right? And there are th other things you can do. You can contact other funding agencies, like the one that she started. I've worked with one in Oregon called AdWords Voice, um, which I, is fantastic. There are many of these around the country. The other thing you can do is just reach out also to the manufacturers, because very often, I mean, there's no, none of the AAC device or app people are hoping that kids don't have access to their stuff, right? We'll, we'll find a way to help. I think we talk about iTunes and Facebook a little bit somewhere in here, right? Is that yeah. If you haven't already subscribed to us in iTunes, I would highly encourage you to go subscribe so you get notified every time there's a brand new episode. And I have a challenge. I think that by the end of the year, the end of 2018, I want, I don't know, guys, what do you think? What's a good number? Right now, I think we have 30 or 35 reviews. What do you think's realistic? 75,000. I don't know. Um, <laughs> 80. I like 80. Let's, let's you think double we can get 80. You think we can get 80 iTunes reviews before the end of this, the year? I, I have a question. Is that I have, a I have a question. I what, I think 80, but like, why not 100? Okay, we can make it nice and round. Nice and even? My, no, the OCD in me is like... It's not possible, Rachel. Can't happen. I, I, I will bet you that we can't get it. Listen... Guys, we have to prove Chris wrong. So if you're listening, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. It is September and we have a few months until the end of the year. So we would love to reach our goal of hitting 100 reviews by 2019. And if we can get there, we will do something dastardly to Chris. I don't know what, but <laughs> you'll have to read them all on air or something. No, don't do it. Go listen to another podcast. Don't listen, <laughs> don't listen to Rachel and Lucas. We'll never hit that mark. <laughs> <laughs> definitely come and check out our our facebook page too so if you go to go on facebook search for talking with tech we got a pretty lively group um with a good number of questions that get posted every week a little bit of extra info um from 
uh, you know, from the interviews and those sorts of things. So check it out, Talking With Tech on Facebook. And um, and I am happy to be back after a three-week hiatus. So uh, feel free also to, to message me directly and poke me and yell at me and whatever else needs to be done. We're so happy to have you back. Well, once again, on behalf of Rachel Madel and Chris Begay, this is Lucas Stuber for Talking With Tech. We will talk to you next week.